On this week's episode of Non-Native Creative, I'm very pleased to welcome Momoko Nakamura to the show. Momoko is the author of Plant-Based Tokyo, a new guide and resource that features restaurants in the Tokyo and Tokyo areas with plant-focused menus. Her work encompasses a wide range of things, but with a central focus on food, and she aims to better connect people with the Japanese countryside. You can also find, from among her services, a special rice subscription service. It's based on Japan's micro-seasons, and she chooses blends from among 400 different varieties available in Japan. This was a super interesting talk with a lot of depth, especially relating to communication. I hope that you enjoy all the things that we talked about and check her out on social media after you listen to this discussion. Enjoy! Rolling. Rolling. And sync. Okay, we're good to go. Good. Fantastic. Oh, okay. Looks good. I'll get started. If you're ready, I'm ready. Fantastic. All right. Uh, On this week's episode of Non-Native Creative, I am very excited to welcome Momoko Nakamura, author of Plant-Based Tokyo and extraordinary food and Japan, I guess, sustainability-related food consulting (laughs) amazing person. I'm so excited to speak to you and to have you on the show today. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you. Uh, If you are not familiar with her work, she is also called Rice Girl online and has so many cool projects that I hope we can talk all about uh, in our time together. So I want to begin uh, our interview today by asking you the same question that I ask everybody. Uh, I'm borrowing from the X-Men series (laughs) with this question, but I ask everybody to share uh, their origin story. So what was the thing that happened or what was kind of the uh, experience that you had that got you started on the road that led you to where you are today? Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. Um, My origin story with Rice Girl is actually my origin story as me person Momoko. Okay. Um, so it they're there they definitely can't be um, separated. Um, I mostly grew up in the US and I lived in the US and UK and kind of went back and forth between there and Japan. And so um, much of my life I've spent outside of Japan. Mm-hmm. And my single connection, consistent connection with Japan was the dinner table what we ate Mm -hmm. Um, and as the fundamental staple of Japanese cuisine we ate rice every single day or we or I because I lived alone for many years too so you know even when I was living in an apartment by myself it was kind of that the bowl of rice that was always kind of that consistent staple for me okay Um, And I, after college, I became a television producer for food shows in the the U.S. and the U.K. And um, I was always in a position to uh, communicate food Mm -hmm. through the lens of television, through the the TV screen. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was hugely interesting to do that at the time that I did because... Um, in the U.S. and the U.K., actually very few people were cooking at home. It wasn't cool like it is now. It wasn't this kind of um, romanticized thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, just on the end of people, like of the era of people um, relying on frozen dishes. And, okay. You know, that sort of thing. Yes, and, um, yes. In the U.S., most people will know Food Network, but Food Network had not come to be yet, and you know that sort of thing. And so, mm-hmm. 
um, it was a very interesting time because it was a time of change. People look started looking at cooking and food in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, they started realizing that um, chefs are indeed celebrities and they um, do fascinating things with food and this is what you can do in your home kitchen and perhaps even more luxurious than eating out is eating at home Mm. and you know all of these things and um, and so I was really happy to be working in food entertainment because it actually did create a shift in people's minds about food and cookery in general. Are there any shows that you can share that maybe people watching or listening would be familiar with? Yes, well, mostly I focused on uh, Iron Chef America, which is Ryori no Tetsuji in Japan, Mm -hmm. and it was made into an American show. Um, And I was on that starting team because we needed to figure out how to edit the format so that it would meet the needs of an American audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I worked on other shows like um, uh, MasterChef, mm-hmm. for example. So it was all, all of the shows that I worked on were our food chef related okay. programming. Yeah. Okay, so you had this very just, it seems like it was a very, very natural progression for you, this, this relationship with food in the home and then into your job as well. And so you were working in, in f- food-related media production in the UK and throughout Europe for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you decided to relocate to Tokyo, where we are today. Right. Mm, so what kind of made that shift occur for you? Well, I always knew that I would end up in Japan because it's the place where I felt the most um, at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like... I am a citizen of the world, but I realized in traveling that immigration doesn't think so. <laughs> so you have to choose. Um, and of all the places that I've been, I feel like Japan fits me, my person. Um, that's not to say that my siblings who have had the exact same upbringing as me, um, my sister, for example, she loves living in New York still. So, oh, okay. you know, I think it just depends on you and your work and that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. So when I came to Japan, I thought, well, you know, I've been working through the television screen. I'd prefer now, if I can, to work closer human to human. I see. And, like, what does that mean? Um, And so I went back into my childhood memories and realized how important rice was to Mm me and the all of the stories that I can tell through rice. Um, I also realized that Japanese people are incredibly discerning about food, mm-hmm. so food and drink. So, um, for example, true. you know, branded beef or, you know, the type of wine or the coffee beans they get. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, this staple of the dinner table, people are, n- are not that knowledgeable. Mm. Everyone loves rice. Um, it's an incredibly important part of the food culture but people are not necessarily that discerning that's true i feel like there's a very strong sense of like brand loyalty if you ask people they they probably have a favorite rice i feel like you know koshikari or something like that but beyond maybe a certain brand that they're familiar with at least i haven't heard many conversations relating to more you know specific topics right Mm. absolutely and you know there are actually said to be like 400 varietals of rice in japan grown in japan um and well, with now with climate um, climate change and global warming, rice can be grown very easily in places like Hokkaido, which mm-hmm. used to have too many um, months of snow that it wouldn't be really appropriate. To, yeah, 
to grow rice there but now you can and there's loads of delicious rice being grown in Hokkaido too so from all the way in you know snowy Hokkaido down to tropical Okinawa Mm -hmm. really every nook and cranny of Japan there's rice grown wow I had no idea that's that's very interesting though that like the Hokkaido rice only became possible because of climate change related issues that's very interesting. <laughs> That's very interesting. Yes, because they say the, because they say well, it takes about ten months to grow rice, mm-hmm. um, and so it's kind of like birthing a child. You need that whole year. So if you, if most of the months are snowy, then it's not possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so now it is made possible I for see. many factors. Wow! Reasons, yeah. So you took this this interest and in, and this very uh, I I don't want to say basic, but this very fundamental food in Japan and you've kind of built this amazing I guess series of projects around around this interest so you have uh, maybe the first thing that we could talk about then is kind of one of the first things that I had the chance to experience from you which was um, your I correct me if I'm using the wrong terminology here but like micro seasonally divided or micro seasonally determined uh, rice uh, Packages, blends, yes. yeah, blends, blends that you provide to people worldwide now to share this uh, this incredible uh, depth and 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 breadth of flavor and uh, and also like cultural background. So you provide a service now that does that for people all across the world. Yes, was that an accurate? I don't know if that was an yes. accurate description. No, absolutely, or how you, wonderfully how you accurate. It. So I provide um, <laughs> micro seasonally selected. Um, uh, rice varietals mm-hmm. and blend them according to the micro season. So in Japan, there's the four seasons: mm-hmm. spring, summer, autumn, winter. That break down into 24 sub seasons, and those 24 sub seasons break down further into 72 micro seasons. Mm-hmm. Now, following and keeping up with the 72 micro seasons is a little bit of a um, too much running around because that means the seasons change every five days. Oh, wow. So I focus on the 24 sub-seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's about 14 to 15 days um, uh, of duration. Mm-hmm. And basically following this micro-seasonal um, calendar, this traditional micro-seasonal calendar of Japan, helps us appreciate the now. You know, it's, it's um, for example, I'm not so good with incredibly hot and humid weather. Mm-hmm. But when you're following the micro-seasonal calendar, you realize that it only lasts for five days. And these five days are the only five days where you can hear this bird singing and this sort of cloud and this other animal, you know, prancing about. And it's it's like, it's ephemeral. Okay. And so because it's ephemeral, you realize how precious it is and how interesting it is. And so... I've actually learned to really enjoy those hot and humid days because it comes and it goes. Uh. And so it's like, what are the things that I can do now, mm-hmm. only now? What are the things that I can eat only now? I see. And it makes it incredibly fun. And because there are, you know, 300 or 500, so approximately 400 varietals of rice grown in Japan right now, um, there's so many varietals to introduce. Mm-hmm. And I realized that each varietal is very unique and different. And so by focusing on blends that are that match, that sync up to the micro-seasonal calendar, I can showcase that variation. Mm. So for example, in midsummer, I would recommend varietals that are a little bit lighter and more al dente, okay. toothsome. Um, in midwinter, maybe more chewy 
and bouncy and rich um, because what you eat as a pairing to rice and what you what you um, find enjoyable mm-hmm. that time of year really depends on the season. I see, I see. So using that as kind of the, perhaps it's accurate to say, like kind of the core of what you do or maybe uh, as, a, as a focus point for what you do then. So you provide... Uh, these blends which you yourself have sourced like you go and visit the people who are farming the rice all around Japan to determine the best blend or uh, to to find you know new connections or maybe to find perhaps even new varietals yeah yeah absolutely I mean there's so many varietals that it's difficult for me to keep up as well Mm -hmm. Um, but at the end of the day I think it's the farmer's story you know that I've realized that people are not necessarily interested in things um, but people are really interested in people. Mm. And so if I can highlight these farmers and share their story, then it makes that the rice taste that much better. Oh, that's cool. That's mm. really, really cool. And their energy, their personal energy is so within the, the, the DNA of the rice itself that when you know this person is loving and energetic and wonderful, then, you know, that gets, those vibrations get transformed into the rice that they produce that's cool and that makes me think too then of another another thing that uh another service that you provide and that i've i was lucky enough to participate in one time you also do a kind of food many different types of food related experiences one of which uh the one that i participated in was a workshop where you uh, taught about, uh, of course, rice, the specific type of rice for the season, and also the proper way to make it. And you had some food pairings prepared, and it was mm. an amazing experience. Oh, it God. was, it was, it sounds like such perhaps uh, a simple thing, to, you know, how to cook rice, but the way that you prepared it and all of the the steps that I never considered and how it changed the result, mm. I was really, really surprised. Mm. It was such a great experience. So you're doing those kind, you're doing that kind of thing, and you're also uh, sharing uh, the countryside essentially with people who you know are maybe visiting Japan uh, and have an interest in food uh, and have an interest in going to to see these places and like meeting the farmers as well right yes mm. yes yes so the workshops absolutely um, I often teach people how to cook rice per- cook brown rice perfectly every time okay um, and in Japan Um, Most people use rice cookers, Mm -hmm. um, but I also like to showcase that cooking it in a donabe or a Japanese clay pot or even a Dutch oven Mm -hmm. is just as easy and and definitely more delicious. I see. Um, And so to remind people how easy and delicious it really is, it's... it's, um, hugely kind of um, interesting for me. Mm. And then um, I also do uh, tours within Tokyo, mm-hmm. um, particularly particularly around the concept of plant-based cookery. Mm. Um, and then uh, retreats into the Japanese countryside to connect with farmers and other food purveyors, also artisans like ceramicists, um, natural dye mm-hmm. weaving, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I suppose it's one of those things where um, in other countries it may be easy to research this sort of information online and then mm-hmm. connect with them directly. But mm-hmm. I understand that in Japan, sometimes there's language and cultural barriers. Right. So whatever I can do to connect people deeper with Japan, mm-hmm. with the real Japan, mm-hmm. um, and not kind of like the idealized Japan or, mm. um, th- you know, that's 
if if I can be used as a tool in that way, that's really makes me happy. Right, that's a key point I think is you know, a city like like Tokyo or I suppose even Kyoto or Osaka where there are lots of people from many different countries coming over the the accessibility of information is much higher than it is in these, you know these very countryside locations, but that's not to say that you know those places aren't worth visiting and there's there's a wealth of of things to explore and discover out there. So right. that's really really fantastic. And then I guess this leads to then the the one of the things that I mentioned at the beginning of this discussion, which was your book that yeah. you created uh, and launched last year, mm -hmm. uh, Plant Based Tokyo. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe share a little bit about what the what yes. that book is? Yes. So. Um, a lovely Japanese publishing company came to me and said that they were interested in doing a vegan or vegetarian guide to Tokyo mm -hmm. and um, and I said fantastic you know I can certainly help with that but I wasn't interested in, in doing a guide um, I just felt like as you say you can research this sort of thing right. online um, and frankly restaurants open and close all the time mm -hmm. and so there has to be some added value into making it a print publication mm -hmm. into a book um, and I realized that people were getting very superficial information about plant-based cookery in general particularly in Japan where um, kind of young people tend to be at the whim of mm, let's say fashion and apparel companies that are putting mm -hmm. out quote-unquote organic food or you know, this and that is healthy, and there's a lot of fodder out there. Mm. Um, but I really wanted to connect people with things that are real and authentic and homemade. Mm -hmm. And what was important to me were, were the people behind the food. So just as I was talking about the farmers and um, the farmers who grow the rice, mm -hmm. the same thing goes for the chefs who are making our food. You know, what is their thought process? Mm -hmm. What is their, what are the emotions behind what they're doing? Right. What purveyors do they work with? Right. Um, you know, they, they, they usually make their own seasonings, whether it's miso or um, otherwise. And, and so I selected my favorite cooks who um, really do everything themselves, mm -hmm. you know, who don't necessarily work for a big company, but run the house themselves and cook all of the food and that sort of thing, and mm -hmm. um, sharing their tale. Mm -hmm. um, so if their restaurant no longer exists 10 years from now, the book the book is there so that you're interested enough in that person to wonder, to kind of inquire and figure out ah, what they're doing now, right? Interesting. That was really important to me. Uh-huh. And that came across, I remember when I picked it up to read it, uh, and it was very easy reading. Like, it's not, it doesn't read like a like a guidebook at all, as right. you mentioned. It reads like like a, a series of profiles mm -hmm. more than anything, mm -hmm. uh, accompanied by gorgeous photos, too. Right. Everything has just the these beautiful photos. Such yeah. a nice job. But everything in the, in the book is very it's it's like takes a much more philosophical look at what's going on in, in each of those kitchens and I was <laughs> I was taking notes as I was reading like the places that I wanted to go to mm -hmm. like uh, places that I, I had never heard of uh, many of them uh, I guess just because as you said you know I'm looking the information that I'm getting is from you know popular uh, food sites like Tabelog for mm -hmm. example so where maybe many of these places aren't listed or right I just, they're hidden right you know mm -hmm. so I was really really pleased and really excited to like to look through the book and to find lots of places that I didn't even know and really great resources and also things to think about as well because you've done I felt like you had done a really good job of weaving in uh, to into the profiles uh, the importance of 
uh, having those connections like to producers to uh, having you know a, a local farmer that you always get your uh, your resources from or uh, th- there were there were always like these these stories that were showing how uh, the restaurant or the chef was not working as a single independent unit but how uh, they were connected to the rest of the community and I, that sense went through the whole book and I just thought I thought it was really really nice oh, it was a really I'm great glad. it was a really great I'm thing glad. it was such a good resource too and one of my favorite things about that book is that you also prepared the map mm. uh, that people can access. You have to you have to buy the book to get mm-hmm. the uh, <laughs> to get the password to access the online map. But I thought that was such a good resource for anyone visiting the city who's maybe not so comfortable like putting in addresses or they they don't mm. have the confidence to do that. But you created a map of all the places that you listed in that book so that people can go and just check it and they'll see like the little pins right. for where the restaurants are so they can choose some place that's close to them. Like I just thought that was such a great idea. Uh, and I mean, it would be so helpful if I'm like a first time visitor <laughs> and like I'm not confident in the city, but I can at least see which restaurant is closest to me. Like right. I really liked the way that it was organized as a resource, you know. Oh good. Yeah, it was a resource in many different ways. So yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Oh, I would totally good. I would totally recommend that oh, for anybody who's you. you know who's interested in that thank kind you. of food. Yeah, uh, for when you look at an address when you're traveling internationally, you know it doesn't really make any sense. Uh-huh. So if it pops up in a in a like an app and a map, then you know you can just go to the place that's nearest to you. Right? Exactly. Exactly. So I felt like that was that was an extra little thing. Not even a little thing. That was an extra thing that I felt that was like, oh, that's such a that's such a great idea. That's so helpful. That's so I'm helpful. Glad. I'm glad. Yeah. So so you have all of these different projects uh, going on. And you have all of these uh, kind of, uh, I guess, I should say supplementary resources that you're making as well, too. Mm-hmm. So we haven't really talked, we haven't talked about it yet. But uh, in addition to the, uh, this, the, the rice blend mm-hmm. subscription service that you offer, you also have, as kind of a, a I guess, a background to this, uh, you share uh, short YouTube videos explaining in depth the micro seasons mm-hmm. so that people can understand uh, again, kind of the background information. What is what is the um, the the feeling that you're supposed to, or that you can experience through mm. eating this, or uh, what uh, you know? What's the reason for this this kind of poetic name on the right, rice and right. so on? So you're creating a lot of supplementary material as well to help people understand more. And all of it is in English. I should right, say this right. too. Absolutely. Mm. So you know, I was getting a lot of queries around. You know, what exactly is the Japanese? traditional micro-seasonal calendar, and Mm -hmm. I realized that there were um, chefs and brewers and interesting people outside of Japan who were kind of leaning on the concept of the Japanese micro-seasonal calendar, but as I fleshed through in perspective um, information out there in English, I realized that there really was not much. Mm -hmm. There wasn't much at all, Mm -hmm. Um, and so I wanted to provide more, more information. I mean, I well, frankly, for a lot of people, it would be the first time to even, yeah. you know, be uh, acquainted with the con- with the concept. Right. Um, but uh, there was really nothing sufficient out there that I could that I could copy and paste to someone to say, okay, look, this is really what the micro seasonal calendar is about. And mm. you know, if you look if you look at this or if you watch this or if you read this, then you'll you'll understand a little bit further. And so, um, so then I just went ahead and created these short YouTube videos that. Um, explain each of the sub-seasons in, into the micro-seasons and then um, and then 
you know, really have it used as a reference to the other work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, because my, my goal really is to connect the Japanese countryside with the world, but through, through the city. There's so, the city, I feel, is, is, a, is a cross-section of so many different things. There's so many people coming in and out of the city, in, you know, particularly Tokyo, um, coming, uh, people around the globe really gathering mm-hmm. in the city. Um, and also the city in any country, I think, is a really great hub for culture. Mm-hmm. That's where all the museums are, and that's where... Um, that's where fashion is created mm-hmm. and you know that sort of thing these are these are the types of things that you are not able to get in the countryside right so I always like to say there's such fantastic things about the countryside and there are also such fantastic things about city mm-hmm. and there are things that we can learn from one another right um, and so when you go into the countryside there's um, so many learnings there but um, I think they're enhanced by what we learn what we can learn from the city people who use those things. So, for example, mm-hmm. with the chefs that are who were introduced in plant-based Tokyo, mm-hmm. they're very connected to the place people in the countryside, mm-hmm. right? Getting fresh produce from the farmers and that right. sort of thing. But it's very interesting to see what they do with their hands in the city mm-hmm. to transform those ingredients mm-hmm. into really um, beautiful art, mm-hmm. edible art. Um, here mm. and I think that those people are able to do that because they come from all different backgrounds like you know a lot of them used to do other things like a, you know maybe a graphic designer or maybe an interior decorator mm-hmm. or maybe you know someone who was skilled in languages or maybe a um, former cabin attendant mm-hmm. or you know people come from so many different backgrounds mm-hmm. um, and that's what that that's what makes um, the story within the countryside more vibrant because it kind of comes it gets chewed up and mm-hmm. then curated through the lens of people in the city. I see so there's this kind of transformation of this thing that it originated in the countryside and uh, not just the thing itself but also the processes that create this thing that it becomes once it arrives in the city too mm-hmm. so that seems like there's there's a lot of layers to this discussion mm-hmm. it sounds like mm-hmm. that's very cool like to, to consider then too. And going back, you said, too, then your goal is kind of to share the, the Japanese countryside because, as you said, the city is obviously perhaps much more accessible in terms of information uh, for people. But your goal being to share the Japanese countryside with people outside of Japan, that is. Uh, could you maybe share a little bit about um, what kinds of uh, topics you're you're hoping to share more about that's mm-hmm. like specific to the countryside? I mean, rice, of course, being yes, one of them. Rice, of sure. Course, yes. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm honing really into this concept in Japanese called ishokuju, which it means clothing, food, and home. Mm-hmm. The three fundamental pillars of living, as they say in Japan. And um, just to, as a easy reference, I call it dress, dine, and dwell. Okay. Um, but it's uh, it's said that without clothing, food, or home, you aren't able to do anything else. And um, those are kind of the necessities of life, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And when you go into the Japanese countryside and you, um, you uh, take a peek inside people's lives who may live kind of a slower life, mm-hmm. um, they are incorporating these f- 
kind of fundamental basics um, in a very rich way. Like it's very much part of everyday life. So, you know, for example, all of these things used to be either agriculturally produced or um, available organically in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, everything we ate, everything we wore, and everything we made our homes with, mm-hmm. they were all farmed or um, in the mountainside, so right. to speak. Um, and now we're using a lot of synthetic things. So in our food, they might be there might be pesticides. In our clothing, there might be synthetic fibers, as well as you know in our home. So you know the people who are in the countryside are a little bit closer to the to the natural non-synthetic materials i would say Mm -hmm. um and that's 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 the the tangible stuff but also there's there's something to be said for the intangible as well like the way people think um for example there's a lot of our grandmother's teachings within dress dine well like making sure that we make handmade miso every single year for the entire year that ensures that um we have um really delicious um uh ingredients preserved ingredients um in our kitchen at all times um but also that those ingredients have uh important microbes that uh that um, maintain our health Mm -hmm. for example and by buying off-the-shelf miso, we have to be very careful because sometimes it looks like miso and tastes like miso, but it's not necessarily fermented properly. And so you're not getting the full benefits of that. So okay. it's, it's kind of like, you know, what what we get from what we what we um, get from the people who are living in the countryside is a little bit of a peak in education into these. Um, these three pillars that we might be we might be um uh one step you know away from Uh, like kind of removed from removed from from it Mm. yeah 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 there might be we might be able to get a little bit closer and then how do we get closer to that Mm -hmm. while still living in the city Mm. and that's always that's always my kind of stance is like what can us city people do right like we can learn from the people in the country but if we're not living in the country well what then what can we do Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's interesting uh there's uh, there are two two directions that i want to go with this one is uh do you are you kind of imagining then that uh you would like to help uh or maybe help is the wrong word maybe encourage people in the city to make some like lifestyle changes with is that kind of one of one of the goals that you have in your mind then I think so. I mean, lifestyle changes for sure. It's more like um, um, options. Mm -hmm. So it's like if people want to incorporate, um, for example, miso making into their annual Mm to-dos, it's something very easy that city people can do. Mm -hmm. And at first it might seem overwhelming or... Um, just something that's not very familiar but in practicing and doing so you realize how easy it is and then that's something that can be done year after year Mm -hmm. Um, and so I guess incorporating some of the hints from from our um, from our friends in the countryside really kind of helped uplift and um, nurture our lifestyle in the city okay gotcha Okay, so then the other goal or the other topic that I wanted to uh, bring up then with regard to this is 
Would you say then that that kind of goal, uh, is it different depending on the country that you're targeting? And to be more specific here, would you say that your approach to uh, working towards that goal is different in Japan uh, than it is in, say, like the UK or in the US? Would you say that you're taking kind of different approaches to how to address these issues? Yes, absolutely. Um, in the US and the UK, when I wax lyrical about rice farming and um, our grandmother's kitchens and the micro-seasonal calendar, it's very much in relation to environmental res responsibility and cultural preservation. Mm -hmm. um, I think these are key words that um, loads of people are interested in and it's it hits home and it hits the heart. Um, Environmental responsibility, I think, is something that is incredibly top of mind when you're outside of Japan. Mm. Um, part of everyday language, part of everyday discussion. Um, and cultural preservation, for example, in the U.S. is something so interesting because um, it's the U.S. is such a hodgepodge, a melting pot of so many different cultures that... Um, um, kind of hearing about someone's background is that much more interesting because then you're able to compare it to your own or compare it to your right. friend who is you know some something totally different right. and that sort of thing and there are so many similarities but also differences mm -hmm. and what where do those similarities and differences um, lie um, and when I have these conversations in Europe for example um, people are extremely proud of their culture culture mm -hmm. and preserving their culture and so they say you know us and you know Japanese people were the we're the same uh -huh. we love culture or whatever <laughs> we have very deep culture uh -huh. kind of thing and in Europe you know environmental responsibility yes is very top of mind mm -hmm. and s smart and responsible agriculture mm -hmm. um, whereas in Japan I think that sometimes sometimes these conversations are considered too hard-hitting mm. um, too close to politics mm. um, and so people say ah you know maybe we'll talk about that another time or not oh. no, not here not now type of thing mm -hmm. um, so it seems kind of like a more divisive issue mm. there's just the topic of, of like uh, environmental responsibility or even just like kind of changing mindsets a little bit about you know the, our approaches to food and everyday lifestyle choices yes. so that's that's seen as divisive in Japan yes divisive mm. and also aggressive I think okay mm. that's really interesting yeah, yeah. so <clears throat> rather than talking about it from a negative perspective it's really important to talk about it from <clears throat> from a from a softer mm. positive perspective like for example um, the use of pesticides in Japan is outrageous um, but it's something that's already happened so rather than talking about how outrageous that is really shifting that conversation to be like hey what can we do now we mm. we all love rice rice is so important to mm -hmm. our everyday you know life mm -hmm. that um that what can we do to so that we can you know continue to eat this delicious rice so mm. to speak so you have to take different approaches depending on the group of people that you're discussing with then mm. so finding these taking this very like um positive agreement-based steps forward so finding these small like uh, commonalities these points uh, with which people can agree in when you're having the topic or when you're having the discussion in Japan as opposed to when you're having the discussion in, you know in Europe or uh, in the USA or Canada or something where you're able to kind of uh, punch a little bit you know you're able to, to you know say things that might be perceived to be hard-hitting 
mm. here in Tokyo. Mm. So w is that is that a challenge for you? That would be challenging for me to keep that in mind, you know, to mm. have to kind of be two people. You're trying to have the same conversation, but in two very different ways to meet the needs uh, of of the of your of your audience. Then, mm. like, is that is that challenging for you to try to do that? It is challenging, but I suppose that since I was a little girl, I've been used to being two people. Okay, so it's kind of like the English speaking me is one person, mm -hmm. and then the Japanese speaking me is a totally different person. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, it's something that I would say that it's not that I'm not used to it. Mm -hmm. It's more, um, I think, difficult when pe other people look at me. So because I'm, I have kind of two faces, so mm -hmm. to speak, people are con can be confused mm -hmm. as to what my stance is okay. or like where what sort of conversation they can have with me or mm, you know what I mean that sort yes. of thing I think it's just more difficult for other people to dissect uh -huh. what that means uh -huh. oh that's that's so interesting like the uh, usually at about this time in the in the interview we're talking about kind of these very external factors like uh, when speaking with expats about uh, their experience working in Japan, they'll share about the, you know, the challenges of working with Japanese people, but you're, what you're describing now is kind of this internal, this very internal challenge of uh, being perceived differently according to like the language that you're speaking or according to uh, the people with whom you're working at the time. So, right. so for example, mm. on my website, um, and also you know, in Plant Based Tokyo, the book, it's very important for me not to have direct translation because mm -hmm. I feel like the audience the English-speaking audience knows and wants different things from the Japanese-speaking audience. Mm -hmm. So the the language that I use or the information I provide is actually different. Okay. Mm. I noticed that actually when I was reading because I, I, I don't uh, I neglected to mention that earlier. It's a bilingual book. The mm -hmm. book is in English and in Japanese. Mm -hmm. It's accessible for, for both audiences. So that's very interesting because I remember reading uh, through the book and thinking to myself, like, oh, that's interesting. Like in this caption, it says this in Japanese, but it doesn't mention that in English. <laughs> so yeah. that's why. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Because I think there's a certain level of like background information or curiosity that's different for, for both sets. Mm -hmm. um, and also for those people who can read both, mm -hmm. like in my, my case too, it would be boring if it was the exact same thing, uh, I thought. Okay. <clears throat> and so, you know, changing it up just a little bit. And mm -hmm. yeah, so I guess when I'm talking about like how the outside world perceives me, like for example, you know, everything you put out in social media, for example, mm -hmm. you know, everyone says it's not all real. It's, yeah. it's not, it's just, you know, a portion of what you put out there. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the case. It's kind of like, I put that stuff out there, but you know, the approach I take when I, I'm writing captions in Japanese. It's different from the approach I take when I'm putting captions in English. Mm -hmm. And then for people who can read both, how are, you know, how are they perceiving me? And right. how can I be authentically me, right. but be both of those things? Yeah, kind of thing? that's an extra challenge, I think. Yeah, it's especially when you're talking about the people who can, who, who can read both, you know. If there's, a, if there's a discrepancy between the two, they might... They might even, you know, have that, that is this authentic question yeah. even deeper? Like, wait, is this this, you know, this person seems totally different in yeah. this language. Like, can I trust this person? Yeah. That Who sort of this? thing. Mm. Yeah, but it's actually like a, a cultural sensitivity issue for yeah. sure. There are idiosyncratic things that I try to be really cognizant about um, and maybe to a fault that it's confusing. So oh. these are the types of things I think I need to continue working on is like, 
one set of information uh, as opposed to tailoring it for two sets. I was going to say, I feel like that's that's very interesting because that, that's kind of, I suppose, the opposite of the approach that I take. When I prepare English and Japanese content, I, I match it, but I've noticed I've just, I have simplified my English as well. I've just, I've kind of reduced my message to the core message. Also, like with respect to the fact that many people uh, who are in my audience are non-native English speakers too. Mm-hmm. Like the, so that the approach that I've taken is a bit is a bit different, but I think I just I just simplified it and tried to reduce it uh, to the the main points that I want to say and make sure that I'm able to communicate that as clearly as possible. So, uh, I but I completely I, I respect your approach as well, though too. I don't know. I, like, I that's haven't a gone challenge. That very far, so I feel like maybe yeah, simplifying it to one. Um, voice. It's because uh, I have two voices, right? And yeah. then that's confusing for people. Yeah. So I think that maybe simplifying to one voice that somehow unifies those two worlds that I, you know, straddle mm-hmm. would be better. I just have to figure out what that, what language I put that in. I think <laughs> that's, I think that's an ongoing challenge. I feel like there's never, there's never a moment where you go, I've got it. Because yeah. <laughs> there's always going to be that moment, at least for me, there's always that moment where I think, I like the way that this is written in Japanese, or I like the way that this is written in English. I wish I could make the same feeling happen in the other language, you right, know? And right. Sometimes it just doesn't work. Oh. Uh, anyway, I want to shift topics a little bit then. So we've kind of been talking about uh, your work, uh, your present work and the work that's brought you to uh, where you are today, as well as kind of your thoughts about working uh, across cultures and languages. I want to shift topics then uh, to kind of what's coming up for you or what uh, the next thing is that you're really excited about doing, uh, the next kind of step or the next uh, kind of place that you see your projects going. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there is there something that you're really excited about for the, for the coming year? Yes. So 2020, I've decided, is a year of education for myself, Mm -hmm. um, of learning from my peers, learning from my quote-unquote teachers. Um, These teachers are um, people who are professionals and top, you know, at the top of their game across various genres. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm thinking everything from like an artist to a DJ to a doctor to a, you know, um, cultural anthropologist. You know, I think there's so many people who um, are able to teach me things. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in, and in getting educated, I thought maybe I should just turn the video on and then share that information w- with the rest of the world mm-hmm. because there's, there are loads of Japanese people who are doing really interesting work mm-hmm. but are kind of trapped in Japanese language. Uh-huh. And so if what I can do, well, I get the benefit of learning from them, mm-hmm. um, but then if I can also then kind of pay it forward mm-hmm. by unlocking it from Japanese, that information from Japanese language. Oh, so you're saying recording interviews with these various teacher figures and sharing them in English. Yes. Oh. So the interviews will be in Japanese, um, and then it will be subtitled in English. Oh, wow, that's huge. So that hopefully, mm. hopefully people in the future will say, Oh, you know, I've been wanting to connect. Well, I've been asked this too, but Mm -hmm. I've been wanting to connect with um, Japanese um, creatives, you know, who are doing whatever specific type of work. Mm -hmm. Do you know anyone? Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, if they're able to find those people through the the video series that Mm -hmm. I'm working on, then that's even better, you know? And so with the the series 
kind of focus on the, the types of people that you mentioned before, like those people, for example, working in the countryside who have these, uh, you know, who are doing farm or agriculture or maybe uh, craft related work. Is, is it going to focus kind of on, on those groups of people? Or you also mentioned, you know, like DJs and, you know, and so on. So it sounds like you have kind of a wide variety of people. Yes, I think it'll run the gamut um, from people who um, who are evidently very obviously very connected mm-hmm. to um, J- Japan, what we can learn from the earth, mm. you know, that sort of thing. And then that triad of living, those three pillars of living, okay. clothing, food, and home, or dress, dine, and dwell. Because um, I think that there's a lot of things that we can learn from that concept. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as those who on the surface may not seem to be connected with those pillars okay. or the fundamentals of Japanese living. but. What I, I have this, I have this um, theory, and the theory is is that those people, those Japanese people who really are at the top of their game, no matter what industry they're in, mm-hmm. they've they're so um, intellectually curious mm-hmm. and connected to their sense of like home and place that they've done loads of research. For example, a DJ may have done a lot of deep digging about what sound means or Japanese instruments or um, or the playlists from our grandmothers you know Mm -hmm. that sort of thing and so it's I think it's in part being incredibly educated and um, deep diving into the genre that they're Mm -hmm. that they're um, that where they work Mm -hmm. Um, and then that deep diving is just naturally connected to these three pillars of Japanese living. I so, see. Um, I through my interviews, I want to, s- I guess, see whether my my this theory is correct or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just perhaps a side question: Do you think that that tendency to, as you say, like dig deep? Mm. Do you think that that's something that's uniquely Japanese? Mm. I don't think it's necessarily uniquely Japanese, but I think Japanese people are very good students. Mm. <laughs> we could unpack that statement. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very yeah. good students. Now, the way in which people go about being students or mm. learning might not necessarily be the most effective or the da 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 But I think, I think the Japanese innate want to be a student, uh-huh. to be continually learning, okay. is very, very interesting. Uh, mm. That's a very interesting, that's a very interesting theory. <laughs> I look forward to watching that. <laughs> please make it, please make it. We are near the end of our time together, uh, so I will now ask you, for everyone watching and listening, where can we find you online to learn more about your work? Um, I am at thericegirl.com. Mm-hmm. And um, on the website, that will connect to my YouTube page and my Facebook page and my Instagram page. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, thericegirl.com is what you need to know. Great. Yes. And I follow you on Instagram, Facebook, everywhere. So I will continue to keep up with your projects. You. We'll wrap it up here, I think, if, unless there's anything burning nope. that you'd like to add. All right. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time. You. I really appreciate it. This thank was a you. lot of fun. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Non-Native Creative. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already so that you never miss an interview. 
Also, please make sure to stop by the project Patreon at patreon.com slash non-native Patrons can get access to Patreon-only discussions, bonus behind-the-scenes media, interview transcripts, and access to patron-only live streams. Your support will help make sure the series can continue to share exciting, interesting stories from creative people working across borders. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.